may be seated. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, I'm Paul Joyner, uh, one of the pastors here. If you are visiting with us or have been visiting with us and don't get our email newsletter, you can grab one of those uh, cards in the pew rack in front of you and um, uh, just fill it out. We'd love to give you information. If you are interested in finding out more about the church or our membership process, just note that on that note card, throw it in one of the offering plates up here or in the back. We'll also be having a a lunch um, in a month or so. If you are interested in joining me, the next wave that joins, uh, you can find out some more next steps there as well. Well, if you, and if, lastly, if you're visiting, uh, it, it's, our, it's our practice here at Zion to work through, the main bulk of our preaching is that we work through books of the Bible. And that's a commitment of ours because this is how God gave us his word. And so we want to honor that by following through. But it also is good because it forces us to deal with things that we normally wouldn't take up. This text is one of those. God gets to set the agenda for us, um, as you will see. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 1, and I'll be reading through verse 5. This is God's word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote, but... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is God's word. We should ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? Father, there is great challenge in your word and great comfort. But in all things, it comes with great power to us. Because it is the word of your spirit that speaks to us of the work of your son. And so we pray, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged in all things. Give us hope outside of ourselves in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Speak to us today, our Savior, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, I've, just as a disclaimer, again, if you're visiting with us, I've said this. Um, you know, we're going to try to drive down during, the, Paul's talking a lot about sexual relations in this part of 1 Corinthians. We're going to try to drive down a road that avoids two ditches. One, I have a nine-year-old, um, and so we're going to Try to be age appropriate. We value children in worship too. I've got two college students and I do believe that children need to grow up hearing the church speak to these issues. Now, if your vision of a biblical sexual ethic is simply one man and one woman in marriage for an entire lifetime, that's just not a sufficient biblical ethic. That's like saying my vision of a good meal is McNuggets and fries, 
that's that's a meal that is bare minimum. It's not sufficient. Likewise, there's so much more to God's vision for sex and sexuality. For the wisdom of God is always shaped by the greatest display of his wisdom, which is Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so a Christian view of anything, no matter what area of life it is, a Christian view of anything must work out of the cross and also be shaped by the cross, including how we use our bodies sexually. So, the Atlantic ran an article this week ruling out the deficiency of lifelong monogamy. Polyamory is on the rise in popular culture. Be ready for it if you've not seen it. It's coming, right? Polyamory is on the rise. And the interview was with, with a woman who began to invite men into her marriage bed. And her quote was, I just felt like myself again. And here's the thing. That's that's that it's quite appealing because to feel your body come alive again like when you were a teenager is a thing but it is also a sad irony because a sad irony is that in anything that we pursue if we only give ourselves over to our own fulfillment and pleasure you will become more deeply lost in the darkness that is inside of ourselves and so when it comes to even our sexuality, the words of Jesus ring true as a banner over all of life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the irony of life in the kingdom of God. It's how the cross literally turns everything upside down for us. And in turning it upside down, puts it right side up. One of the reasons that pornography is so deeply against the will of God is because it makes sexual fulfillment all about you. And you know when you make anything about you, your pleasure your fulfillment, your passions, it will eat away at your humanity until you're entrapped in a downward cycle of self-fulfillment. Isn't that the sad irony that is again at the end of that story? Pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake. Pursue fulfillment for your own self, your passions. It eats away at your humanity until you're trapped in the cycle of addiction, a cycle that only escalates into the darkness to find the next level of pleasure until you're trapped with no way out. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the Corinthian church had a bunch of things wrong with it. Just like every church in every place, there um, is no ideal church um, until Jesus comes back in new heavens and new earth. There the ideal church will be because then we will be like him as he is. Now what makes the church ideal is that it's united to an ideal savior. But we're really messed up. We all have a mixed bag of what God teaches from his word and other things that we've also picked up from the world. And it's often, it's hard to separate those things out. It's why we need to be both biblically grounded in a way that stretches across the world into other cultures and across the ages into other times so that the Holy Spirit can conform us more to the image of his son and less 
to the image of this present age. More to the king of ages and less to the present age that we find ourselves in. It's often hard to separate those things out. And so here Paul is actually writing what we have in 1 Corinthians is actually a second letter. He had written a letter to them prior to them and they had written back to them. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul is beginning to address, he's correcting some things that they had said back to them in that letter. And he writes this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, he's quoting them here, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Somehow, they had come to the conclusion that that was a good thing. And as we've seen, some in the church in Corinth had embraced a pretty progressive approach to sexual immorality within the church. They had become quite permissive. And so in reaction, there was another faction within the church in Corinth who had come to the opposite conclusion. Isn't that usually the case that when we are reactionary, we always don't react right back to God's word, but we just move in a far pendulum swing to the other side? It's never good to be simply reactionary. And so one group within the church was like very permissive when it came to sexuality. And so another, church, another faction swung the opposite direction. It's, I mean... It's just, even in marriage, it's not good. And so Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's be clear. The passion of the marriage bed is a good thing. And just to be clear, in this passage, Paul's not talking simply about sex as a function of procreation. It's for that, but in God's design, it serves so much more than that. Our translation reads it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman but the translators here are sterilizing that a little bit in the original language it's touch but whenever touch is used in this capacity it is conjuring up the image of a passionate and intimate embrace in fact that's part of God's design That's part of what God's design is that this type of embrace in the context of marriage is good protection against sexual immorality. That we, we in using our bodies this way, are actually assisting and serving one another. And that's the heart of Paul's argument. And and to get to the heart of, though, Paul's argument here, which is quite complex, I think we need to take a step back for a minute and catch the broader story of the Bible. Our bodies, as we said last week, are designed for intimacy. We're embodied souls, and it's, it's terribly complex and almost impossible to separate out what that means. As embodied souls, that's what we are created to be. One of the great tragedies of death is that it rips the body and soul integration apart. And one of the great promises of the resurrection is that when our bodies that are united to Jesus are raised from the dead, all that's put back together again for a new creation. And the physical makeup of our bodies is as male and female and designed as such for generosity. We are designed 
so that the giving and receiving of our bodies actually produces new life. Both the mother and the father contribute through the giving and receiving. And a new life is born as a result. Amazing generosity in that. Giving and receiving produces new life. But here's Paul's point. In the giving and receiving in the marriage bed also produces new life within the marriage itself. I mentioned this last week. Scientists have found that there is a particular hormone that's necessary for social bonding. This particular hormone floods a woman's body when she gives birth and when she is breastfeeding. And as a result, the bond between a mother and her child is intense and immediate. Fathers, you've, you've probably seen this. And you're in the first child that was born. And you're, you're like, the mother and that child bond like that. And it takes a father a little bit of time to get there. There's a strange feeling often in fatherhood where you watch that. And you're like, I, I don't feel that bonded. Is something wrong with me? No, that, that's by God's design. The woman's body is dumping hormones so that her child bonds to her quite intensely. But they've also found in their studies, and I don't know how they find this stuff out, but they've also found that in the marriage bed, those same hormones flood both men and women in such a way that bonding is produced. And so if you look back at verse 16 of chapter 6, you see Paul picking this theme up of the original creation. Paul quotes Genesis 2, as it is written... In God's math, the two will become one flesh. And that's more than just physically. It's, it's in the physical act of becoming one flesh. The bond between husband and wife is strengthened in partnership and mutuality. And that's a beautiful thing. That through the giving and receiving of bodies in the marriage bed, a new kind of life, through the act of generosity, a new kind of life is born within the marriage. I likened it last week to superglue. Right? By design, the giving and receiving of our bodies in the marriage bed creates an incredibly strong bond. Now students, I want you to hear this. This is one of the reasons that God puts off limits signs around sex that is outside of marriage. What he's saying to you is, I've designed you in such a way that your bodies will bond, when bonded together and used rightly, will glue one flesh together at the deepest parts of who you are. But be careful with super glue because there's no such thing as casual sex. All sex glues people together deeply. And so don't be glued to anyone unless God has glued you together in marriage. And that is because we are made in the image of a God who is triune. Now this is important to see how this works before we can get to Paul's argument. Because this passage has been used wrongly by many. We don't want to go there. We want to use it rightly. And here's what I, what I mean when I say we're creating the image of the triune God. Not just some generic deity we're created in the image of the triune God, the God who exists in unity, three persons as one God. We have to get this because, as I mentioned last week, like design dictates proper use. So don't put metal, my kids, don't put metal in the microwave. 
it has terrible catastrophic results. Take my word on it. Don't do it. Design dictates proper use. Well, we've been designed by the God who is triune, who is three persons existing eternally as three persons, but one God. What we mean by that is within the Godhead, those three persons, the reason they they can be unified as one is that between them is a constant sharing of their essence. The constant movement of giving and receiving of who they are at the core of their being. And so Jesus says this in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And there's a sort of rough sketch of the Trinity. Jesus is distinct from the Father. The Father is distinct from the Son. They are different persons, and yet they are one in unity. How are they one in unity? Because they're constantly sharing between themselves their Godness. Whatever it is that is God is constantly being shared so that on multiple occasions, Jesus can say this, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. There's a constant movement of love as within the members of the Trinity, they are constantly in in the movement of giving and receiving their very essence with each other. This is one of the reasons that John can say God is love. Not just that he loves. If you look at the heart and the inside of who God is, God is love because there's a constant movement of giving and receiving of the essence of God within the two, three persons of the Trinity. And so that, to put it together, I am in the Father, and the Father, we are one in this way. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Now we're made in the image and likeness of the triune God, which means generally, we are, just generally, we are individuals designed for community. And what marriage is, is the most intense of communities. And as an embodied soul in marriage, the giving and receiving of bodies is an act of living sacrifice to God. When he made Adam, just Adam, God's assessment, after every single day, he's like, this is really, what I've done here is good. But when he made Adam and Adam was alone, it was a malediction. We have a benediction at the end. This is good news, God's blessing, his assessment, good. At the end, when he created Adam and he was alone, it was a malediction, not good. This is not good. There's a bill. I've built a deficiency in this man. He needs another. And so he takes a rib out of the side of Adam, not from his head or under his feet, but from his side. She's equal, but distinct and different. And then he knits them together and says, one flesh. I've designed you male and female so that in the giving and receiving of your bodies in an act of generosity, you image me. Now concerning the matters, verse 1, about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's response is, no, on on the contrary, it is a very good thing. A very good thing. And then he says, in order for this good thing to be used to glorify Jesus, we have to go back to the cross to shape how we use every good 
thing. Now, perhaps we have some good groundwork to get back to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the chapter and verses are here are not in the original. So if you've got your Bible, the, the chapter and verses were added um, over a thousand years later, just to give us a reference point where we can find things in our Bible. So Paul's argument isn't broken up by that chapter 7 marker in your Bible. You have to go back at least to verse 19, because remember, he's making an argument. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. Now we're set to jump to verse 2 where he continues his argument. But because of sexual of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're unified body and soul to King Jesus. Now, if you're single, that's a banner over your life. You're not your own. You've been bought body and soul. You belong to Jesus. So you glorify God in your body. There are some amazing blessings to singleness. Great advantages, in fact. And Jeff's going to tackle this in a few weeks after Easter, the blessings of singleness, it's beautiful. It has advantages in glorifying God, but also in the context of married, your body, if you're married, your body is not your own, but is to be had by your spouse. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's the natural outworking of one flesh union. God has made you one. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. And you don't belong to yourself. You belong, your body now belongs to your spouse. Because God has given it to them as a gift. And therefore, we can skip down to verse 3. The husband should not, should, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband now this is another place where the translators and i get this the translators are really sterilizing this a bit they're toning down the language to make it a little more palatable because to be honest this is a strange teaching in our cultural moment in the original language that language of conjugal rights is actually the language of debt or due or owe or rights Most translations don't want to touch the word, so they just translate it as conjugal rights. Sometimes they may translate it as an affection or due benevolence. On all these two, Paul, every other time he uses this word, he uses it for owed rights or debt. For instance, in Romans 4, Paul uses the word to mean a wage. What is owed as a result of the relationship that you've entered into? Between employee and employer. A relationship centered into and something is owed now. In Romans 13, Paul uses the same word relationally again. Certain relationships put a demand that a response to such a degree that something's owed. Pay what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, there are certain relationships that obligate us to duty or debt. 
to give what is owed. That is what's meant by conjugal, that's, that is what's meant by conjugal rights. The husband should give freely what is owed to his wife. It's the language of payment. The husband should give to make good on an obligation what is owed to his wife because of their one flesh union. And the wife should give to make good on the obligation what is owed to her husband because it's not your body, your don't have authority over it, your wife does. Now, you need to understand, like, this is, this is a little strange in our cultural moment. This was really strange in Paul's cultural moment. My body, our cultural moment, my body, my choice. That has been taken up by the left with regard to abortion rights and the right in regard to masking. It's just the waters that we swim in, and that makes it into our own hearts, too. That A little bit of that water gets into our own lungs and we can breathe it, but it kills us. But in Paul's context, it was radical in a different way. In, a, in ancient Rome, a man could have, it was allowed for him to have an extramarital affair. It was very common for him to. He would often have multiple different people that he would give himself to and so that he could take from them. But a woman had no rights over her body. Her body was a possession of her husband's. She could not have an affair. And so when Paul says, husbands, it's not your body. It belongs to your spouse. And he starts out this way. That was radical. But he can do that because men and women are created equal by God. Co-heirs in his kingdom. And while different by design, so that in the giving and receiving, the generosity of God is flowing out in relationship are also equal in terms of dignity and power. Paul often does this. Different but equal. And here's where he goes next. The way any possessions work in God's kingdom is that they are now freely given away for the benefit of others. So in verse 5. Do not deprive, and again, he's, he's using the language back to conjugal rights of debt or owe, and so deprive is actually steal here. Some translations might read defraud. Do not steal from one another one another. Do not steal your spouse's rights to your body, maybe except for a limited time, and then only because you've mutually agreed to do it. It is a mutual agreement to give up what is your right, and then only for a short time that you might devote yourselves to prayer. It's an agreed upon fast, and then come back together again so Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's a beautiful gift of generosity that a wife gives to her husband and thus contributes to his holiness. Because we're made in the image of God who freely gives his essence to the other persons in the trinities. And our bodies were designed to be that image to each other. And the giving and receiving, this is actually good for you. God's given husbands and wives a gift so that we might together pursue holiness within our bodies. A generous union of giving and receiving all that you are. Holding nothing back and giving it freely and joyfully to one another. It's just a little shadow of the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. See, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5 now. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 5 verse 1. 
It's a section. He's going to go into marriage in a section that starts with, be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, what does that mean? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us joyfully. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, not despising his shame. The giving of his own body for our sins was a great delight to the Son. Now, the Father created that body by the Spirit and gave it for his church. Be imitators of God. And he erupts into praise of this profound mystery of the one flesh union of giving and receiving. And then he says this. I'm not, I suddenly switched. I'm not talking about marriage anymore. What I'm talking about is this great mystery is referring to Jesus and his church. So be imitators of God. Who for the sake of his beloved people held nothing back but gave all that he had For the benefits of the ones that he loved. God the Father so loved that he gave his only son. And the son did not consider his status, his rights, a thing to be grasped, clutched onto. But he gave up his rights. The right hand of the Father having the angels singing his praises, but took on to himself a body so that in his body he might suffer the due penalty for our sins, bearing them on a tree. He didn't consider his right something to be grasped, but to be used in service in the giving away of his body. And then when the son departed, bodily rose from the dead, sits right hand of the father, he says, I'm not done giving, I'm not done giving. In fact, it's better for me to go. I'm going to give you a helper who will dwell in you and make your body his temple. Now be imitators of God. Here's the last thing I want to say to this. This, is, this has been mostly just me trying to give us a vision for the marriage bed, but not a rule book. right? If you go home... And demand from your spouse your conjugal rights. You've lost the vision of the cross. Rights aren't to be demanded. They're to be freely given. With joy. And also given up with joy. If you hold this over your spouse and demand your rights. You have lost hold of the crucified one. Who did not demand his rights. But freely gave them up for you. So rather in all things, now some of you are nudging your spouse, rather in all things, the words of Jesus ring true. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself for the sake of me and my mission, because there is more to be gained in giving than demanding. So that Paul can say to the Ephesian elders, when he leaves the place where he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, he's leaving Ephesus, he's writing in Ephesus, he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he gathers the elders around, and he reminds them of this very basic principle of Christ Jesus and him crucified. We must help the weak 
and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good and true. It gives life to the dead. It melts the hard-hearted and comforts the brokenhearted. We would pray that you would you would make us as husbands and wives people who view our bodies as gifts to be given to our spouses in intimacy and passion so that we might give our bodies as living sacrifices to the glory of the name of the one who made us in his image and has brought us back into his love. We are your bride. Your love for us, Lord Jesus, endures forever. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.